Hello, Hello, Did You Guys listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about the postmodern world and how we, as people in the postmodern world, approach the liturgy and what obstacles can get in the way because of the way we live in our culture today. What, what types of obstacles uh, do we encounter when we approach the liturgy? Some really interesting stuff here from Dennis and Chris. So without further ado, episode 12 of season two of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of ultra boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. And in this corner, <laughs> Romano Gardini. I, are we uh, like doing some Pavlovian uh, conditioning of people? Every time they ring the bell, they start to salivate for more liturgy guys. <laughs> liturgy. Yeah, where is liturgy? Sweet Tell liturgy. me about liturgy. <laughs> Tell me about liturgy. <laughs> that's my Homer Simpson donut. Oh, that wasn't your sleeping and drooling? <laughs> well, that's what he does. Oh. Homer Simpson knows the ontological depths of donuts. Homer Simpson is a modern, a thoroughly modern father, isn't he? Is he thoroughly modern? Is he a thoroughly what? modern Millie? Or is he postmodern? What is, po- what, okay, what the heck is postmodern? Well, I think to answer that, we need to answer what is modernity. Postmodern is, Dennis, af- what is it? Is after modern. That's right. But the modern era usually is considered as beginning, what, in the 16th century, at least the early parts of it, uh, but really takes root after the French Revolution. And it's kind of a radical redefinition, redefinition of things, you know. Um, now, Bishop Barron wrote an essay a long time ago called The Trouble with Beige Churches, and he gave four features that he thinks are typical that define uh, what modernity is compared to the traditional or classical understanding of the world. And those four are a subjectivism, meaning the subject is dominant over the object. So my personal response to something is dominant over any objective reality. And you can see that happening in our world today where people decide what gender they are and what color they are and whether they're a giraffe or not. And we're not allowed to tell them they can. Your, my truth is might, might not be your truth. Right. Mm-hmm. Rationalism, which is a kind of undue dependence on um, rational intellectual inquiry at the expense of anything that's sort of outside of the scientific method. Yeah, that's right. He called, uh, I've, I've heard Bishop Barron were recently called uh, scientism. scientism you know, the only right. type of knowledge is that that comes to us through the scientific method. Oh, yeah, that method. is very uh, abundant these days. Oh, yeah. Say, yeah. yeah. Anything else is a priori ruled out. It's not valid. And you know what? Datum. You have this guy, Bill Nye, the science guy, who does these shows. He doesn't even have like a science degree. He has an honorary degree, but he's not like a doctor in any type of research or anything like that, and yet he's spreading the scientism Mm. We'll see if he ever fell in love with his wife. He has knowledge that he can't test with the scientific method that he loves his can't, wife, right? Yeah, so there's obviously that under stuff. a microscope, right? But see, I, that's a more postmodern critique yeah. of that modern yeah, thing. Yeah. Okay, stick in the modern. So that's number two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then dualism is the third one, which is this kind of radical break between Where you things. fight people with. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you, you <laughs> slap them in the face with a glove and challenge them to a dualism. <laughs> no, it's sort of this separation of what they often say is a bifurcation into two forks of say faith and reason that you can't have faith and reason that faith is ridiculous and reason is trustworthy or you can't have body and soul it's just body so instead of these well, you're an or you're you're a biologically evolved organism there's no there is no 
no difference between the two. Right. So you holding two things together instead of one is what they call this sort of dualism. It's usually related to rationalism. And then there's this other habit of mind he calls anti-traditionalism that is a fundamental posture of doubt about the things that have come before. So you can see this is a kind of potent po- cocktail for uh, problems that we have in our own time that my subjective desire is what matters over anything objective. Don't tell me anything outside of me is, is right. My own mind is the one that determines whether anything is real. There's this split between spiritual and physical, or this kind of notion that two things can't be held in one place at the same time. And this is Guardini, right? Not Baron. Well, well, these are, these are well, Baron's. Baron, but okay. it, it's, it's relevant to this Guardini letter because the question we want to ask in this podcast is, can a person living informed by modernity or post-modernity or wherever the heck we are now, how conducive is how capable is that person to liturgical action see and so we'll, we want to ask well how does the postmodern person do this but gardini asked just this question can the modern man participate in the liturgical act right. with these right. uh inhibitions right. that he brings to oh, it if you're fundamentally a good question if you're fundamentally subjective and you and the liturgy is fundamentally objective and you're supposed to be disciplined to it like liturgical ascesis then can you do it? If that's who you are, you can't be formed by it. So can you even do it anymore? If, if it's presuming a rationalism that is the dominant mind, then how can you have all this belief in something that you can't see? If you're anti-traditionalism and your liturgy has yeah. this hermeneutic going right. all the way back through the centuries to Jesus and to the apostles and b- behind that too, to the people of the old covenant, how, I mean, how are you going to mix with that? It's going to be oil and water. Right, and mm-hmm. if sacraments are matter and invisible spiritual reality visible and invisible and if a dualism separates those out and says it's impossible to be both of those things then how can you do this liturgical act if these are the fundamental things that you so we would have to we would have to posit that those four things aren't inherently true well it's not i don't think it's a matter i don't think it's a matter of truth or falsehood i think it's a matter of emphasis or emphasis as david Federberg would say (laughs) that uh, i mean if because individuality and um, living in the present age and seeing things scientific. I mean, those aren't bad. Mm-hmm. We, we benefited a great deal. Oh, yeah, from I it. guess that's true. But if that's the only way you see it, I mean, that myopic view is going to rule out a large part of your Christian experience. And so what Gardini will say, well, if you know the modern man is coming to the liturgy with this type of baggage. See, so we ask this, this uh, what do you call it? Uh, it's not a hypothetical question, but... Uh, um, you know, should, it, should, should we just say that we should give up on this liturgical experiment and all of these objective, traditional, historical, corporate things that it has and just tailor a liturgy to the modern man and his tastes? And the answer he'll say no. is, well, no, you can't do that. Okay, but you shouldn't, um, I mean, it, we, the pastoral practice needs to take into account the pluses and minuses and pros and cons that the modern man has when he comes to the liturgy. But strangely, you know who he, who he calls the modern man is not the man of 1950. It's the 19th century person who he says oh. is the modern. Oh, yeah, because he was... He says, uh, the typical 19th century man was no longer able to perform this act, the liturgical act. And this is part of their critique that in 19th century, because they didn't understand the liturgy that they were doing. Remember, we've talked about devotions and liturgy many times, that because they couldn't perform the liturgical act, they were doing devotions instead. That liturgy became either an external form of ceremonial, which would be more like the verifiable you know, dualism, 
or it became an internal emotional response to something, but they couldn't hold together the emotional and the intellectual, the internal and the external. So these, these are the same questions he's talking about in the spirit of the liturgy many years earlier. If it's just private inward act, that's a, that's a subjectivism. And if it's just an external ceremonial, then that's a kind of scientism. But the, I think what is the interesting point here, and I heard this in a talk recently, I had to do with Gaudium et Spes, which was a, it's called um, the Church in the Modern World from the Second Vatican Council where the presenter was saying that you know the church wanted to finally start to dialogue with the modern world. Okay? But he said the point was that the modern world wasn't really into modernity anymore. It had moved beyond that, <laughs> and it moved into what's called a post-modern world. And so the church was ready to talk and dialogue and open up the windows to the modern world, and the modern world had moved on. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a Just line. like my ex-girlfriend. <laughs> There's a line in uh, uh, Bishop Barron has a, a related article to this, and he sa- he cites uh, this line from Skillebex that the church embraced modernity at the very point where the world was giving up on it. <laughs> Typical church. Yeah, we're always 25 <laughs> yeah. years behind. Don't. So I guess the question, what I think is interesting is is what what is post-modernity, and is the post-modern person any more or any less capable of the liturgical act than the modern person? Right. But you know, if you read. Vatican II, with this lens, it's, it could be seen as a postmodern document, right? Because it's, or, or traditional document in that sense, it's asking internal and external, private and public, um, the primacy of internal participation over the external. The ceremonies are important, but they're not the most important. So I think it sees the dualism of the 19th century, this devotional versus liturgical uh, break, for instance, and trying, trying to hold them together and put them, kind of glue all the pieces back together in the proper hierarchical arrangement. But I don't think the people saw it that way, and I don't think a lot of people still see it that way. Uh, there's kind of an either-or mentality that goes on in a, a lot of churches today. It's either pre-Vatican II or post-Vatican mm-hmm. II. Pre-Vatican II is bad, right? There's that anti-traditionalism notion. Okay, but this is what I think is maybe one feature of uh, post-modernity. Let me know if you think uh, I'm right. That if the modern person was, as you say, anti-historical and anti-traditional, every, the, the, the mantra was out with the old, in with the new. If it's old, bad. If it's new, like for example, in in architecture, right? It was made out of what, what? What is a modern building made out of? Well, they call it often monovalent. All buildings had to be glass and steel and concrete boxes because, because those were the materials of the age of the scientific age of the rational machine-based age. They couldn't have this dualism of a modern building that looked like a traditional building. It had to be what it was. It could only be one thing. It couldn't be traditional, and it had to be um, this. And not that. It was a dualist approach. Okay, so let's take that as an example then. Is the postmodern man and his architecture, is it, how is it similar and how is it dissimilar to modern architecture? Well, postmodern is used a little differently in architecture than it is in theology, but early postmodernism really began in the early 60s and had its heyday in the 80s, but it wasn't a traditional, it wasn't a move to traditional architecture like we have now. They call that sometimes post-postmodern. Or, or pre-postmodern. No, no, it's... it's <laughs> Which is what you're talking about. No, that would be a paleo, a paleo traditional, traditionalism. <laughs> uh, someone who was alive before modernity is a sort of paleo-old traditionalist, but a post-modern is someone who was modern and isn't is after modern. No wonder we don't. We don't know where we are now. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. And so postmodernism in its early phases was a kind of witty reference to tradition. So you'd have a glass and steel box and you'd cut out like columns that were an inch thick and they look like columns, but they're like paper cutouts. It was a branch of modernism that was, uh, we're so we're so modern that we can be 
look like we're doing traditional stuff when we're really not. It's like a little game. But now you have the, the new classical movement of post-postmodern, which is actually <laughs> is not a reference to modern as much as it is about embracing something that's good in itself, that it can be of its day and of the past at the same time. And that's a, re, a healing of that kind of dualism, I think. See, I wonder if this isn't one of the aspects of postmodernism that might make the postmodern man more capable of yeah. liturgically acting because well, there's yeah. more of an openness at least mm-hmm. or a sympathy, not an outright rejection, but there's an openness to things that have gone before. Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not a pre- cultural commentator here, but I mean, think of like millennials and hipsters. I'm just going to say that. Yeah, you, you, men- you mentioned CDs. Um, what are CDs? <laughs> See, uh, you don't even know. No, I know what CDs are. I had a Discman. I even had a Walkman growing up. With but, tapes? See, and I'll bet if you had a Walkman now, I, that Walkman is more valuable yep. in 2017 than it was 10 years ago. It probably is. Because there's a desire for kind of older looking oh, yeah. things and clothes and music and media. I was at, I was at a bar in um, Logan Square in Chicago and they had a stadium beer guy. He walked he walked around with cans of beer and you bought him from like he would be like beer here and he'd walk around the bar selling beer like that. And then I saw this other guy that they hired to walk around the bar in this old accordion camera and he would take these like I don't even know like tinotype <laughs> photos of you and people love this they love like facial hair is really big now and looking at you know now some would say that it is almost it's an ironic you know nod to that kind of Dennis like what you were saying like see we can be fun and witty and still be modern but I also think there's an aspect of that too Chris where where there's a recognition of the beauty in the ancient Dennis, do you have anything to add? I think so. I mean, you can you can come at the liturgy from the point of view of Vatican II ruined everything and I'm going to do something not that. Or you can come at a position that says there was a certain uh, development and certain things were gained, certain things were lost, and we're going to go to the essentials. What's that word there? My favorite word. Ontology. Ontology. Right. Talos. Oh, in, in many ways, modernity is an anti-ontological movement. Absolutely. It, we're not looking at what the thing is. We're only looking at what our... Because that thing is whatever you want it to be. Right. And I decided it doesn't have a, two parts to it. It's only one thing, right? So the body is not matter and spirit. It's just matter because scientific analysis. You can't prove a soul, so therefore we're just reject that and i think postmodernity is open to multiple layers of reality again the question is what do people do well they start using crystals or worshiping wiccan you know wiccan goddesses or whatever something spiritual but we don't quite know what's right and so well, we still have that subjectivity i think in but many wonder, ways i mean is it would you would you rather uh is it easier to convince or um uh, try to testify to someone who's least open to crystal new age spirituality or to um kind of a hardcore atheist right there's no such thing as a spiritual realm is a lot harder to talk to than right i believe in something spiritual and let me help you in some sort of weird way it's almost like we're 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 making progress i never thought about that but that is a very good point and even uh you know the scientism which especially characterized you know the 20th century and, and industry and technology um, you wonder if the postmodern person, you know, as Bishop Barron would say, you know, after the bloodiest century on on record, you know, that whole modernist project just didn't pan out like we were hoping. Maybe mm-hmm. that's maybe that's not the be all and end all. That there are different ways 
and a more openness to. Uh, is, do I get a bell for that? Accidentally, I, I guess. You got an That's a Bishop bell. Aaron bell. Okay. You got a post post bell. Yeah. So even <laughs> you know the way thing the the. The way people see the world, even though that scientific, strictly scientific way is uh, very prevalent, I think there's a kind of a crack in the edifice that allows some different light in. Right. So Guardini's question here is, what is, he doesn't say ontology, but he says, what's the nature of genuine liturgical action? As opposed to these other religious actions like devotions or um, loose communal acts. And so... You know, if you look at the 19th century critique of, well, everybody thought liturgy was ceremonial. That's a kind of external scientific thing. Oh, it's all internal feelings. Well, that's a kind of subjectivism. But it's, you'd even talk about the science of the liturgy sometimes as a discipline. Yeah, and what did uh, Einstein wrote, the science of the cross. I mean, you can, you can do it. There's nothing wrong uh, with that. But what he's really saying is, what is the, how's the liturgical act constituted? And he's saying that liturgy is not just external. It's not just subjective feelings. So... If modern man is incapable of holding these things together, can we even have a liturgical act at all? And what's well, his conclusion? Yes. The answer has to be yes, right? Well, the answer is yes, but that modern man needs some reformation and uh, education. See, and I think the postmodern man, whatever his difficulties are. I'm sorry. Are, I'm still laughing at the post, 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 post. He at least, whatever his dysfunction is, or my dysfunction is whatever. There's at least more of a an openness to the liturgical act in postmodernity. Than Isn't that modernity. true with any type of man, man, in any type of age and era? Don't sure. we always have to remove ourselves from the present to understand that what is you guys talking about anamnesis in the liturgy and. Well, no, no, no. I, I think any age and any individual in any age has got good things going for him and bad things going for him. Mm-hmm. Things are going to help him participate and things that are going to hinder his participation. But some ages have more going for it than others. <laughs> and here's the question he asked that got everybody all in a tizzy, right? And I don't know if the people have really settled this, but he doesn't answer it quite well. But he says, uh, isn't the liturgical act so bound up with historical background that it would be better and more honest to give it up altogether? If we can't do it, why should we go through the motions? Wouldn't it be better to admit that man in this industrial and scientific age is no longer capable of a liturgical that act? That kind of gets me up in a tizzy, actually. And here we go. This is yeah. like right during the council. Oh, yeah, that's an important point. The council's still going on right, while he's writing this. Instead of talking renewal, ought we not to consider how best to celebrate the mysteries so that modern man can grasp their meaning? Yeah. Shouldn't we just give it all up? And why, why are we trying to get people to do something that's fundamentally foreign to them is mm-hmm. fundamentally that question. Well, that's what people have been saying about liturgy for the last 20 or 30 years. If people can't understand this, why don't we just do something they can't understand? It's because people, um, in some ways, the people who say that are formed in a modern <laughs> oh, and postmodern yeah. culture. Of course that's they would a, say that. That is a been, vicious cycle right there. They've been formed to say that. Yeah. Wow. Right. And this was this was a letter that he wrote. This was in a formal address. You know, he wrote it was a, not like a motu Guardini. <laughs> no. Although it was a letter to a liturgical conference. Right. So he writes a letter. <laughs> so I, there's authority there. <laughs> well, and, he is an authority, certainly. Right. He was, you know, quite famous, of course, by this point. But Spirit of the Liturgy was what 1918. Mm-hmm. So by 1964, he's one of the grand old scholars of the a movement, and then poses. And now he doesn't say that he agrees with those questions. He just poses those questions as the ones that need to be discussed. And he says, it's a hard saying, but other people are saying this. What do we do? And unfortunately, he didn't really answer the question. So that's why people don't know if he believes it or he's just, you know, being provocative. Father Barron suggests that people thought he was just old and grumpy and by that time. And so he's just surly about everything and pessimistic. 
But I mean, if you read his other writings, uh, like he has one on liturgical education and one on liturgical science, it's all about how to help change that person, inform that person, modern or pre-modern or post-pre-modern, post-modern, <laughs> to enter into something objective in a non-scientific way where they can encounter the mystery. Even though outside of that hour on a Sunday morning, the world is a little different got to kind of shift mm-hmm. mentalities. And he might have been pre-postmodern in this sense. I did that for you, Jesse. Uh, in that he's he's recognizing modernity and its flaws, um, but saying, hey, we've got, we've got to do something else. So he talks about the faculties of looking can be very important, even if, you know, not to be so word-based and scientific, uh, like a lot of the renewal was pushing. And uh, that music, he says, is more than merely decorative, but it's actually involving the mind, heart, spirit. Uh, so he's kind of inviting this multiplicity, or how would you say it, a multiple multivalency. Multivalent. Oh, yeah. that's exactly how I would say, it, Chris. <laughs> well, I'm glad you thought of that. Or like first. the other example is bringing up the collection. It's not just a pragmatic way to get the money from A to B. <laughs> it's a spiritual sign that helps to facilitate the offering of yourself as a gift. Right. And I don't think modernity, even with these with these four marks that's mentioned, I think that was always kind of a small self proclaimed intelligentsia that's oh we are these people i think the average faithful person knows it can be the appearance of bread and the real presence at the same time they're not they're not convinced by these marks of modernity and so the real question to me is modernity is just a sort of funny christian heresy i would think and uh, our job is well to, there was a pious ninth on uh, modernism see the one wrote uh, i think so motor, yeah. is a motor proprio or encyclical but it's a summary of all the heresies right? summary of all heresies each oh, one really? of these each one of these points can be addressed right subjective is no subjective and objective rational sure great but there's more than that dualism yeah you're recognizing two things here but let's let me teach you how these can be held together and then anti-traditionalism well that you know obviously is impossible anybody who speaks a language inherits a tradition from somebody so instead of just admitting this is modern man and too bad they can't do this anymore to say hey let's talk about the flaws of modernity and this is what postmodernity does the question is what does postmodernity put in its place and yeah. the catholic orthodox flexible wonderful development of doctrine view, I think is a good answer. Well, and the big liturgical question today is enculturation and adaptation. And so how does the church adapt itself to a modern or postmodern culture? There's some things it can, it can work with and other things it just simply can't. And to be ignorant of modern or postmodern culture makes the process very difficult. Well, I like that question that he asked, though, because it almost seems kind of like a last effort plea i'm like come on you know and so i feel like the question asks there's a lot to that question it's more than just well let's just give it up it's more about well what's actually happening here and that's what i like about that because it makes you actually think about oh you know what 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 should we do in terms of enculturation and and move the liturgy towards where where we are in terms of our age and man and how much of it are we moving towards Moving yeah. us towards yeah. the liturgy, right? right. That, that is always the fundamental question. This is where people of goodwill will often uh, disagree. And so if you value that objectivity of the inheritance, then you want to protect that. If you really value the perception of that inheritance, then you want to propose that as well. You know, he, saw, he finishes up by saying, there's a great deal to be said on this subject, but I better close, which is a kind of, you know, cruel in a way. <laughs> Let me open what this gigantic tease. Pandora's box, and then I'll just leave it to you to work it out. And I think people are, 50 years later, people are still trying to work it out. But it's the postmodern mind, I think, realizes those four marks of modernity are kind of silly, and the time is over. And the real question is, what do we do now instead? Well, I think the real question is, if somebody 
in the postmodern world asks us a liturgy question, should we even answer it? Would it be a post-podcast question? <laughs> I think as postmodern people, we are incapable of answering liturgical yeah, questions. Yeah, so let's not even do it. Okay. Or maybe we should try it. Let's we'll, try. We'll see. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Jesse, do we have a question? Uh, we do have a question. I thought you had a question. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, a priest friend of mine, Chris, asked me this question just yesterday. What am I even here Father for? Father X from... Are you recording this? Somewhere, yeah. I think he said somewhere in southwestern Arizona. <laughs> he said, I could say, all I could say, Father Rudiger. And he said his, his little parish and the people there were very interested in having a, an altar rail, a communion rail back in their church. So they put one in and uh, they're interested in kneeling for communion, not just one at a time like people often do, but like lining up at the communion rail like they often do in the extraordinary form. And he said that if the normative posture for receiving communion is standing, as the bishops have said, American bishops have said, can they receive kneeling this way? So what say you, Chris? Well, yeah. Doesn't, yeah. I also want to know. Thanks for chiming in. Let's there, just pretend Jesse. that I asked the question. Okay. Uh, it doesn't matter what I say, right? <laughs> What's your best interpretation of the norms? That's pretty easy, actually. It, but this is uh, this, uh, an interesting development. Um, the, what the general instruction of the Roman Missal says is this. This is at number 160. The norm established for the dioceses of the United States of America is that Holy Communion is to be received standing. Now, stop there. Uh, in the third edition of the Roman Missal that came out, the general instruction part, came out like in 2001. Right? And what it would say, it went on to say, is that those who kneel should not be denied communion, but it should be explained to them the reasons for this norm. Right. All right. What the new one says, and so this came out in 2011. So it says the norm is standing, but now it says, unless an individual member of the faithful wishes to receive communion while kneeling. What if a whole bunch of individual mm -hmm. members of the faithful? Well, then one. all of those individuals uh, can decide to receive just communion one at a time, or can they line up shoulder to shoulder at the rail? Uh, no, they. I, I think that's the interpretation here. They, if if you want to receive, the normative posture is standing unless you want to kneel. Okay, so how would you receive standing when there's an altar rail where everybody goes? You can do that too. How? You can stand out there, ultra rail, stand or either, you know. okay. Sure. I've been to parishes where the people, some older folks, can't kneel, and so they just stand at the end of the line. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's more of a. Uh, well, I won't stand for that. <laughs> sure, you won't. There's more of a flexibility here on the on the um, recipient. And the good model to go with always is ask your local, ask your bishop to find out what's yeah. like, what he can say, what the local uh, office of worship allows. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I heard an, a talk by. Um, Bishop Elliot, my senior Elliot, who wrote that book on the ceremonials of the church. Ceremonies of the Roman Rite. Roman Rite. And he said, whether people stand or kneel, 
they should be side by side when they receive communion. Mm-hmm. He didn't like the idea that people come up one at a time and receive communion alone. He thought communion should be received with someone on your left and someone on your right, whether it's your mom or your dad or a neighbor, and that that was a much better way to receive communion than alone. It's like it's your one time with Jesus. I thought that was interesting. I never thought yeah. of that. It's a communi- communal event. Well, it's, a, it's again, it's that mix we've talked about in former podcasts of the individual relationship with Jesus, but that always takes place within the context of the larger mystical body of Christ. And so there's this tension between uh, unity and individuality. In fact, um, we did a podcast on uh, the Monium Principium on uh, translations, right? Should it be Roman unity and centrality or local bishops, conferences, individuality, and local decision-making? And many people think, no, we want that Roman centrality. Well, here's another example of that. Should there be everybody does the same thing, unity, or should individuals be allowed to decide for themselves? Local. Well, I think I think <laughs> probably a lot of people would want it both ways. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people I know would like Roman unity and centrality, yet the individual communicant's right to decide to do what he wants. And so it's it's kind of a hodgepodge of choosing which principle we want to emphasize when it suits us. But so Father Rudiger, talk to your office of worship and check. They'll with know your, everything. Check with your bishop. <laughs> but then they uh, then there's unity yeah. in worship too, right? So shouldn't you be worshiping in unity? You should. Yeah, but there's so, again there's a, there's yeah. there's place for individual times with Christ okay. and individual expressions. But Could yeah, it be the norm in the parish, though, that everybody kneels at the rail? Uh, no, yeah. you just as you couldn't be, re- say, refused communion by kneeling, nor could you be refused communion hmm. by standing. But could you just say, this is the way we do it in this parish? You wouldn't have to do it that way. But could you? No. <laughs> okay. All right, I Father Rudiger. No. Chris says no <laughs> with a slight tinge say, of frustration. We're just saying. Uh, so could it be like you can receive... Standing or kneeling, and then like a wink, and then like kneeling, like standing or kneeling. I'm not even going to respond. Social okay. pressure. Okay. All right. If you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.